0: All right, if you have a Bible, you can grab it and make your way to 1 Samuel chapter 27. And if you are a guest this morning, I want to say a special welcome to you. I welcomed you at the beginning. Maybe you weren't in here by then, but I want to welcome you again. We are glad that you are here with us this morning. And also, just kind of let you know, we're, we're in the midst of this series through 1 Samuel. There's 30 chapters, and then we're going to move into 2 Samuel as soon as we finish That, But in the midst of of this series in 1 Samuel, we're kind of in this little section uh, inside of it that, that I've previously described as kind of like a cross between the Jason Bourne movies and Stranger Things miniseries, all right? Now, Jason Bourne in the sense that uh, David is on the run from King Saul. King Saul is insane. He wants to murder him. He is envious of him. He is after him. David's already been anointed king by the prophet Samuel, who's now dead. A lot of characters going on in this. I get that, but it's, it's a story here. And, and so he's just awaiting his turn when it's time for him to be king. He's waiting for Saul to die. And so he's in this section. So, so that's the Jason Bourne. He's been running. He's on the run. Ten chapters, about ten years as well, on the run. Jason Bourne, fugitive, on the run, right? The miniseries side of things is in this, like within any miniseries, you have this overarching story, but then you have these individual episodes inside of it. And so these 10 chapters across these 10 years are kind of like little episodes. There's little stories of the conflict between Saul and David here and the conflict between Saul Saul and David here and the conflict between Saul and David here. So that's kind of the miniseries portion. But the reason I've talked about... Stranger things that and described it as a mini series, and that is because of what we've got in the text this morning, which is where Saul is going to hire a witch to perform a satanic seance and try to call up the spirit of the dead prophet Samuel. So, what am I going to do with that? Right? <laughs> so it very much is Stranger Things. It is very, very strange text that we've got before us this morning, kind of fitting. It's the 14th, Halloween's around the corner. We've got witches, we've got seances, all this kind of you know, nonsense that's going on here, Stranger Things this morning. And, and on kind of that Halloween uh, deal, uh, we will have cards for you. Um, in the next week or two to pick up so as your kids go trick-or-treating as you have people that knock on your door give them candy yes good candy not cheap candy good candy and also give them a card that invites them to church all right if you get candy you get a card no card no candy that's how it is at our house but no be nice if they won't take cards still give them candy And we're gracious But yeah, that's kind of what we've got in the text today. This strange story. And yet, as we're going to see both in this story about Saul and also before we even get into that, chapter 27, a story about David, this is hugely practical, even though it's strange, it's hugely practical because what we're going to see in here are three like really, really common ways that 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 we often respond to desperation. Three ways that we live out our life when, you know, things get tough. Three ways that we, just lifestyles, we kind of default into when things get really rough, when it's dire straits. And it's my prayer that, that, that this morning we'll, we'll see these kind of objectively, understand them, but then we'll also see them subjectively and see us in these because we're all prone to these in one way or another and that as we learn these and as we see them and as we expose them and as we ask the holy spirit to expose them in our own hearts that we'll understand how to push back against them and learn to not let desperate situations drive us to desperate actions but a desperate pursuit of christ and we would trust in him and be found safe in him, regardless of the circumstances and the situations that we find ourselves in. And so that's my prayer. We're going to really expose these three things, these three, you know, misdirected, wrong-headed ways of thinking when life puts us in desperate situations. So very much kind of a kind of a warning type of sermon versus a do this type of sermon, a a warning, let's be on guard against these things. So we'll just make our way through the story and we'll kind of weave these, uh, you know, ways of wrongheaded ways of thinking. We'll pull those out as we make our way. We'll highlight those as we make our way. So if you will pick it up in first Samuel chapter 27, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback one around you. We're going to be on page 249 in that one. And we're going to read two chapters this morning, so you will be aided if you will open up the Bible, open up and follow along. 1 Samuel chapter 27, page 249, and the Bible is around you. We'll start reading, obviously, in verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Remember, he's pursuing him. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So just a little context here again. We've got this 10-year miniseries, right? 10 years that this has been going on. Israel and Philistine are constantly at war. That's going to come back up at the end of, uh, well, during the midst of our sermon today, and in particular next week. But you've got this 10 years of running, and David is tired. He's been fleeing for 10 years. He has 600 men who are with him, plus their families, plus his own families. And so he's got these 10 men, and they're constantly shifting, hiding in caves, and running over here, then running over here, then running over here. 10 years of this. So he's worn out. He's tired. He's been making sure they're okay protecting him, and yet he's had all these crazy adventures in the midst of this, but he wants relief. He wants to be done with this. And so he thinks to himself, maybe, you know, one time I went to Philistine, but I just went by myself and it didn't work out too good. Maybe if I take all my guys with me and we hire ourselves out as mercenaries, then maybe they'll like take care of us and we can have a time to rest and I can actually get some sleep. And so that's what he does. He's apparently worked something out with the king already. And so then he heads into town, and look at it, verse 2. I mean, you're already starting to see a bad idea. He's leaving God's land to try to find protection. And he's, already, and he's going back to Philistine. He's already been there once, and it went bad. Anyhow, verse 2, look at it with me. So David rose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. Again, another bad decision on David's part. He's got two wives. That's polygamy. That's sin. Always has been, always will be. Clearly sin, Old Testament and New Testament. So another bad deal. Like, don't have this idea of David as something like, he's a hero of the Bible, absolutely, but do not put him on a pedestal. He's made of the same stuff you are. And that should also kind of be an aid and a help to us as we reflect how God works in his life in the midst of his continued, you know, folly. Verse 4, And when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him and so outwardly speaking the plan looks like its success if he wanted to get relief he got relief but it goes bad still then David said to Achish if I have found favor in your eyes let a place be given me in one of the country's towns so that I may dwell there for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you so that day Achish gave him Ziklag therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land. And would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments... And come back to Achish. Alright, so he's a mercenary, but then he would lie about it. Verse 10, when Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the nagab of Judah. Or against the nagab of Jeremelites, Or against the nagab of the Kenites. So he would lie about who he'd attacked. He would say he'd attacked like people of Israel or their allies. And he's earning Achish's trust through diabolical ways. It's not, not right. And David, verse 11, would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath. All right? He didn't want anybody coming back, so he would kill everybody, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while, a year and four months, that he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he's made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel, because he's been telling him, I'm attacking Israel and their allies. Therefore, he will always be my servant. And so, at this point, if you are like me, you are beginning to look at this and you are beginning to think, is this really the king that God wants? This guy is a liar, this guy is a murderer. And and what does this deal with raiding and killing? Does God sanction this? And the answer is no. God has not appointed this at all. This is all David conniving and scheming and raiding, just trying to keep his front up with Achish, the king. And so we've already seen throughout this text that, that Saul is not the king is not the true king that Israel needs. And we're beginning to really get some signs that neither is David. That there is another king to come. A greater king. The true king. And that king is Jesus. And so again, 1 Samuel is pointing us and propelling us forward to see Christ. That he is the only king that will truly bring a blessing to all the nations. But back to David and his conniving and his scheming here. When I read that chapter, besides some of the weird stuff that's in it, did you notice anything else that was odd? Maybe a better way to ask the question is, did you notice anything that was missing? Maybe even more to the point, did you notice anyone who was missing? God is not mentioned one time in this chapter. It is a godless text. And this is not insignificant. What this is showing us is that David has drifted to a place that we so often drift to when things get difficult and we get desperate in situations. We respond in a, in a desperate way, the same way that David's responding here to trying to get away from Saul. And it's with a, and this is number one in your notes, a functional atheism. We will live out a functional atheism. Like, like God is absent from David's thinking here. He's absent from his concern. And before we cast stones at David, remember, we do the same thing as well. We just default to this functional atheism in times of desperation. Not actually saying, well, there is no God, but just living like it. Making our choices and our decisions with no thought of God. Just thinking about us. What do I want to do here? What what do I think is good? What do I want? I, 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 me, 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 me. And in our panic and in our desperation of just trying to, you know, cowboy up and get it done, we will stop waiting on the Lord's timing and plan. And so just as God is absent from this text here, he's so often absent from our thinking. We, we often don't think about him when we're making decisions, when we're concerned about things. We live out this functional atheism. Now to be sure, I want to make sure you don't misunderstand, I am not advocating some kind, you know, this, this let go and let God nonsense. Right? There are things, there are choices you have to make. You can't just sit there and do Nothing. All right? You can't just sit back and just completely do nothing and expect like an Oompa Loompa riding a unicorn down a rainbow to fall out of heaven onto your lap and, oh, there's the answer. Like, that doesn't happen. It doesn't work like that. It, it, you, there are things you have to do, and so understand being prudent is not functional atheism. Okay, I want to make that sit because prudence, I mean, Jesus was very prudent. John chapter 7, he decides not to go into Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles because he, they want to kill him. So he's like, you know what, I'm going to wait a minute, then I'll go in. I don't think any of us are ready to accuse Jesus of a functional atheism. So there's a difference between prudence and this functional atheism, but there is a line at which you cross over, and that line is when you disregard God when He's not a part of your decisions, when He's not a part of what you do, when He's not a part of, of like all of your life, when you segment Him, this is the little God region, but all this other stuff is like, God stay out. Functional atheism. And so let's just ask some questions here. When you're thinking about a business decision, when you're thinking about a job change, when you're thinking about maybe starting a dating relationship, when you're thinking about a major purchase of some sort, when you're thinking about a move, is God a part of that? Not a God bless me in this, but what will this mean for my relationship with you? Will this help draw me to you? Will this perhaps pull me back from you? Will this help me engage more in reaching the nations? Or will this pull me away from that? Will this help me engage more with the church and growing together with the church and pushing one one another on to faith and God? Will this pull me away from that? Is God part of your thinking? Like what he says in his word. Or do you sometimes drift towards this functional atheism? I want what I want, I'm going to do what I want, and God, I just want you to bless it. And other than that, stay out. Search your heart and be honest. We all go there at times. And there's grace for sure. That's the good news of the gospel. Christ calls us to repentance and faith. And so let us repent. And not just in here, but out there. Right? Repentance that leads, like fruit in keeping with repentance, that we live that repentance out. And so this is what David's doing here, functional atheism. No thought about God, just very Proverbs 14. There is a way that seems right to man. The rest of that verse goes, but it tends towards death. And while David doesn't die here by living this functional atheism, he absolutely gets himself into a huge mess. Because he's deceived Achish so well that Achish now wants him to go to battle with him against Israel, who he's been anointed king of. So he got himself in a huge pickle here. Verse 28, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces chapter 28, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David just tries to come back with an, you know, ambiguous argument. David said to Achish, very well, you, you shall know what your servant can do. Very non-committal. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So he's in a huge pickle, all right? This is going to have to be a part of this sermon that's to be continued because this will not be picked back up until chapter 29, and I decided for us not to go three chapters today, just two, so we're going to pick that up next week. All right? But when we get to verse 3, it's a scene change, and now the, the author starts talking about Saul and how Saul is responding to this threat. The Philistines are coming to war, and this is not a minor skirmish. This is like throwdown. This is a big, big war. And so now scene change we're going to start talking about how Saul responded to this and so look at verse three now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah his own city and Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land here we go stranger things The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by urim or by Now, someone might say, whoa, 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 I thought that um, both Joel and then it's later echoed by the Apostle Paul that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord might be saved. Yes, if it's legit, Saul's just going through the motions. Going through the motions of repentance is not repentance. Praying a prayer of salvation that's not from the heart is not salvation. You're not saved by magic incantations. You're saved by a disposition of the heart, repentance of sin, trusting in Christ as your Savior, not this walking of an aisle, the walking Savior. Moving from one location to another location in a building does not do anything salvific disposition of the heart and so he's just going through the motions here he's just you know faking it he's never truly repented of his sin and so God's not answering him none of the three ways he tries to hear from God during that time because they didn't have a Bible yet they may have had the first five books, the Torah, but it wasn't a very common thing outside of the priests to have that. that. So God would speak through other means primarily, dreams and Urim and prophets. And so God's not, not speaking to him through dreams. He's not speaking to him through the Urim, which was something that the priests had. Why is he not speaking to him through that? Because he slaughtered all the priests, right? One, Ather escaped and he ran to David. And so he's got the Urim there with David and the Ephod there. And then the prophet Samuel was dead. But what I find applicable as I look at this is that Saul even inquired of the Lord at all. Like He's been far from God. He wants nothing to do with God. But now he's desperate. Now he's in crisis mode. And so now he comes running to God, not because he loves God, but because he wants something from God. As if it's a, a last-ditch effort to escape his situation. And so what Saul does here is, again, something that's common to us as well. Sometimes we live this out, and this is number two in your notes. We will try to live out a crisis-only Christianity. A crisis-only christianity like we only take it serious when things get hard we only take it serious when we need something from god otherwise god stay out of my life stay in the corner but if i need something then i'll let you know when you come serve me he's the potter we're the clay not the other way around God of the universe, you come serve me when I want you, otherwise butt out. But we do that. And I'm not saying that's wrong to seek God during crisis. It's absolutely what you should do, right? He's there, He's for His people. And God uses moments, crisis moments in our lives, a lot of times to shake us up, to open our eyes. Many of you, your testimonies, if you are a Christian, probably begin with some sort of crisis. Or how He's grown in your life. Something happened. Some sort of crisis went on. God works in that. He does. The danger, though, is that sometimes we're prone to see God as a genie in a bottle to get us out of our situations. To avoid pain or suffering or hell. And we'll treat Him like a pinata. And as long as we play the game right and we whack it right, all the goodies will fall out and we can get what we want, which is the goodies. Not Him. Not Him. But God will not be our spiritual pimp. He will not play that game. He does not say, you get me on your terms. He says, you can have me on my terms and I'll give you all of me. All of me. If you will but take it, humble yourself, repent and receive me as your King, which is what Lord means, and Savior. And so if our only motivation in seeking God is avoiding hell after we die or getting out of a situation, recognize we are Saul and we're lost. Repentance that does not lead to change in life will not lead to salvation in death. And so the Lord doesn't answer Saul here. And in response to this, rather than repenting and truly turning to God, Saul delves into a little pragmatic hypocrisy. And so look at verse 7 with me. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Again, he's outlawed this, right? And it's already forbidden in Deuteronomy. And his servant said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Endor. This is probably where George Lucas got the name of the planet moon, where the Death Star was. With the Ewoks, he got wicked and all that. I mean, this is probably where it came from. Verse 8. So Saul disguised himself, because it's against the law, right? And put on other garments and went, he and two, of, two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely you know that like what Saul's done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. How ironic. How ironic. He is swearing by the Lord who he is explicitly disobeying. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. like She was freaked out. What? Because it doesn't normally work. I mean, she's a, she's a phony. She's a fraud. So she's... What? She's terrified. I'll come back to that in a minute. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? She recognizes now, This is Samuel, so that must mean you're Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid, just tell me, what, What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God, lowercase g, coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up. And he's wrapped in a robe and Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage stranger things indeed so let's chat a little bit Saul had started out really well here he had kicked out the necromancers and all that all the witch doctors who practice these sorts of things all right the occult those who deal with the devil and though we in the West are really prone to like dismiss that and be highly, you know, skeptical of that, especially since there's a lot of shams and tarot card reading and psychics and all that stuff as you travel around all over the place. Outside of the Western world, the presence and danger of witchcraft is a much more present reality. And behind that reality is a darkness, a demonic power that that we rarely recognize, but that scripture addresses at length. So the demonic is a, is a real deal. And so Saul, rather than repenting, has gone this route. It's having a witch doctor conduct a satanic seance trying to contact Samuel so that I can ask him some advice about Philistine. It's just about the worst decision you could possibly make. Now, you can't do a whole lot worse than this. Just as we see Saul, we think he couldn't possibly go any lower and the next week we're like, oh, he did. It's like that guy who's like, hey, hold my beer, watch this. Well, I shouldn't say beer in church, but you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Hold my root beer, watch this. Just when we don't think he can go any lower, he does. He goes lower. And so the witch does her little seance, and then to the witch's own surprise, because she screams, the spirit of Samuel miraculously shows up. Okay, now make sure you understand not because of her seance. Right? She screams, she's terrified, she's surprised. This doesn't normally work. No one shows up. I just kind of fake it. But then here comes someone for real. And so she's scared. She doesn't understand what's going on. And make sure, so it's not by, because of like demonic power that the medium, you know, through the medium that this has happened. Because as Luther pointed out, believers who are in the hand of God and in the bosom of Abraham are not under the power of the devil. And Calvin basically says the same thing. The devil does not have power over the souls of the saints which are in God's keeping. And so Matthew Henry comments, God permitted on this one occasion the soul of a departed prophet to appear physically and come as a witness from heaven, thus sending sending Samuel to confirm the the word that he had spoken on earth. And we'll see that previously in chapter 15. Hebrew scholars Kill and Delich add that Samuel's appearance was of such a character that it could not fail to show to the witch and the king that God does not allow his prohibitions to be infringed upon with impunity. And so Samuel came not as the command of the witch, but at the unexpected, and I had a little thing fall off earlier, that's why we're getting some popping here, unexpected will of God unexpected will of god. And when he comes, here's what he says. It's very much a repeat of chapter 15. Look at it with me in verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, "Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up?" And Saul answered, "I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams." Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Again, this is going back to chapter 15. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, so now some new information for you, big boy. The Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. You're going to die. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And so this is just to me, it's kind of like God's like, "Oh oh, you want to see Samuel? Okay, big boy, here you go. And hope you enjoy his message. And Samuel shows him. he's like, well, let me get this straight. God's abandoned you, and rather than repenting, you have gone to a medium to call up a spirit to give you advice. You want me to talk to you. All right, I'll talk to you. The kingdom's been ripped. And I'll see you tomorrow. Not a message you want. But that's the thrust of the message here. Very much a repeat of chapter 15. You've been rejected. There's going to be a new king who's better than you, and you're going to die. And that may seem harsh to us. But if you go back in the previous 27 chapters, you will see how God offered Saul grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and he spurned it and he mocked it and he pushed it away and he wanted none of it and now judgment's coming because while God is merciful he is just and there is judgment so I've got to ask you friends are you like Saul have you grown up around the things of God and you've got just enough of christianity to inoculate you to the real thing you've grown up around the thing but you've never truly repented you've played the game you play the part you know what to say you know what to, what not to say but you've never truly given your life to christ And if that's you, your judgment will not only be for your rebellion against God, but also for your contempt for his grace. And so trust Christ now. If that's you, don't be like, I'm embarrassed, because everybody thinks I've been a Christian for so long and I'm scared. Embarrassment for a moment, then promise no one's gonna be like weirded out. We're gonna rejoice. And so repent and trust Christ if you haven't. There's no embarrassment here. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. If you've not trusted Christ, trust Him. By faith, put your faith in what Christ has done. His life in the place of yours. He was perfect, you're not. His death in the place of yours. You're condemned, He's not. But He took your place on the cross and suffered and died for all of your sins as a substitute and He rose again in victory, defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave. So place your faith in Him. Trust Christ now. Again, there's no magic potion to pray. It's a disposition of the heart. Place your hope and trust in Him. And I or any one of the elders, Jeff was up here a moment ago, would be glad to talk with you about that more afterwards. But also want us to see one last way here that we respond with misdirected desperation a way that Saul responded here. So we've already talked about functional atheism. We've already talked about a crisis-only Christianity. But another way that we do this, and this is number three, is that we get so desperate that we'll live out a pragmatic hypocrisy. So number three is a pragmatic hypocrisy where the the end justifies the means. This is a good thing, so we can do whatever we want to get there. And so like Saul here, you know, he started well, he's kicked out the necromancers and all that, he's banned them, as the law said to in Deuteronomy, but then God won't answer, so you know what, actually it's okay. It's okay if I go to a medium, I mean, it's practical, I, I need a little bit of help here. And so his pragmatism drove out any remnant of integrity that was left. Did we do that? we win at all costs whatever it means and you know any means justifies the the, the 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 end mindset we we live that out and so yeah mediums maybe they're not the best thing to do normally but i've got extenuating circumstances that god probably didn't actually consider so he'll be okay if i kind of do this it's just a practical thing do we do this do you do this do i do this And do we live this way? When things stack up against us or against things that we care about, do we give way to the practical realities and believe the lie that certain emergencies or situations render God's Word unnecessary? It doesn't apply here. It doesn't apply to me. Everyone else but not me. I've got extenuating circumstances. What matters to God is not success in your job, or in the military, here, or politically. What matters is obedience. God's not looking for winners. He's looking for disciples. And the Bible teaches that obedience matters far more than escaping your circumstances or achieving your goals. And while we may never pray to Satan or visit a a witch in her witchcraft, if we justify and become pragmatic hypocrites in the small areas of our lives, we're setting in motion a pattern that will inevitably lead toward more compromise, hypocrisy, and sin. And so, for example, physically in general, I try to be a healthy guy. Right? And I get that genetics plays some role in that, but I also do work. So, I mean, I love my fried food, but I also try to eat relatively healthy, run a couple times a week, lift weights a couple times a week, get sleep, those sorts of things. Small things, very small things, but done consistently over a long period of time make a difference right? Health, we know that. If you flip that around, still very little things, but not eating well, not exercising regularly, not getting sleep, not working out. Again, all these things are very, very little things, but over the long haul, if they're done, what happens? Health deteriorates and opens you up, at least, to an increased possibility of greater ailment. It's the same thing in our spiritual lives. Justifying things that we'd label little sins, You know, here, there, justify this. It's not that big of a deal. A little white lie here. A little fudge on my taxes here. A little, little, you know, I won't quite tell the whole truth here. tell part of it, but just leave that little part out. Justify this, justify that, justify this, justify that. None of which we really think is that big of a deal. But you allow them to go on and on. Over the long haul, and you get sick. And so like Colossians 3 that we read earlier, anger grows, wrath grows, malice grows, slander grows, obscene talk grows, your health deteriorates, and now you are ripe for bigger sins. I mean, no one sets out to have an affair, right? No one wakes up one morning and is like, I think I'll go have an affair with my coworker worker today. That is not how it works. It happens over time, gradually. Tolerating this, justifying that. and Now I'll tolerate this little bit bigger one, and I'll justify this, and now, and now, and it grows and grows, and it happens over time. You're not attacking it, you're justifying it. Pragmatic hypocrisy. I've been through a rough time. I deserve this. It's just one time. It's not that big of a deal. And then before you know it, boom. It's not just adultery. This could be anything. Anything. And so, for the glory of God and your own good, don't believe the lie that your circumstances are somehow the one exception to God's once for all commands in the Bible. That you are somehow like outside of that. Don't believe that lie. There aren't circumstances in your life that God did not think of. He's God. He's omniscient. And His ways always are for our best. He's never keeping from us. He's trying to lead into joy. And so trust Him in that. And so we've got to be on guard against these things that we do. This functional atheism that we fall into. This pragmatic hypocrisy that we live out. This crisis-only Christianity. And so let us learn to not, you know, let desperate situations make us do desperate things, but trust Christ in the midst of desperate situations, because He's there, and He is not silent. And He's for you in them. Like That's probably been the one main thing that we've Hit every week through this text is that he doesn't disappear in times of trouble, he doesn't disappear in times of your own sin. Because he's still for David. And David's crazy, just like us. And so let's not fall into these things. And you're like, but I'm already there. We we all are already there. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. He knew we would be functional atheists at times. He knew that you'd fall into pragmatic hypocrisy. He knew that sometimes you would live out a crisis only Christianity. He knew all of that and all that you would do every time you would betray him, and he still went to the cross for you. He still did. Because he loves you, and he's for you, even when it's hard even when it's heartbreaking, even when it feels like your heart's going to rip out and you're terrified. Don't respond to desperate situations with desperate measures. Respond with faith and trust in the God who loves you and is for you. Let's pray. Father, we know that in this world we will have many troubles, but we give praise and thanks that, Jesus, you have overcome the world. Father, we confess that we are so often turned to these things, and we will live out these functional atheism. We'll forget about you. We won't think about you. Or we'll only think about you when it gets bad. Or we'll excuse away our sin because, you know, in this situation it doesn't apply. God, forgive us. And Father, as we take a moment now of just silent confession, would you hear from heaven and bring healing to our hearts?